the world seems to be reeling. There is so much going on and so much I want to talk about. And today is a day that we are going to dig into a few things. But more than that, I'm going to give you a big picture, kind of pull out from the drama of the day and give you an idea of some of the things that are going on. Now, you've heard a lot of stuff in the news. You hear things here that you don't necessarily hear other places, but what I'm gonna do today is pull some of these things together and paint you a picture with the idea that we are called to be the light of the world. The light that is within us is here so that we can impact the world around us. You have heard the old adage, you know, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. B for living brightly means believer. You have to establish what you believe. And that is so important in these crazy, crazy times we're seeing right now. It's easy to get wrapped up in anxiety or passionate debate. We should do, they should not. What the heck is going on? <laughs> it's everywhere. But it can be boiled down into just a few key components. And that's what we're gonna look at today. These few key components that have tentacles that reach out into your life, that are impacting your life. And if you don't have a solid foundation in what you believe and in whom you find rest and your identity and the gifts and the talents to confront these things, you will fall for anything and you will be drug away by philosophies and ideas of men into all sorts of chaos because you're not resting in the truth. This is the Living Brightly podcast with Elaine Cross and today we are going to talk about the dance with the devil. Are you dancing with the devil or are you like a lighthouse firmly planted on bedrock warning those around you safe and secure in who you are and what you are doing what you need to do to make this world a better place to burn brightly individually as a lamp together as a city on a hill thanks for joining me wow this last week has been a whirlwind of activity and division within the united states really struggle across the globe is in the news and some more than others. Maybe you have heard about the farmer strike in the Netherlands. You've certainly heard about what was happening in Sri Lanka. Of course, we have an ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine. We have China doing live fire testing around Taiwan. Wars and rumors of wars. Hmm. Is this it? I don't know. I don't think so. Maybe. <sighs> Who's to say? The only thing I can say is that the Jews had studied the prophecies for hundreds of years and they still got it wrong. That's my perspective. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. So my Jewish friends, I mean no offense by that. But I think all of us would admit that we cannot read the tea leaves, so to say, <laughs> as to what things are going to happen. And I think a lot of that is because a lot of it depends on us. It depends on you and I as believers. 
those who put our faith in the creator of this universe and how we are to interact with those around us. Now we can isolate, we can segregate, and we can create our little enclaves and not go anywhere else. And yet, if you look the world over, great numbers of people turn to God for help, for direction, for faith, for belief in times of trouble and struggle. And there have been times when it seemed like the whole world was ending, but we didn't know the whole world like we know the whole world now, right? Oh my goodness. Rome took over a lot of what was known in the world. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, so whole large land masses were discovered just a few hundred years ago. And here we are where we are in an information age when we can know and see, not just know, but see instantaneously what's happening across the globe. There are satellites, there are TVs, there are, oh my goodness, our cell phones tell us stuff that's happening everywhere. But our cell phones also have these algorithms that give you what you want to hear. They, they silo you. They put you in this box and they feed your questions and they feed your fears. And we need to step away from that. We need to step into truth. I'm going to lay out a few things, but if you don't have your beliefs set, you are subject to all kinds of whims and emotion. And we know we do not trust our emotions. We cannot be driven by our emotions. If you do a search on your phone for heart is deceitful, one of the first things that will pop up is Bible study tools. And they put it this way, deceit is a nasty little word. And most Christians would steer clear of anything considered deceitful. Defined as the act or practice of deceiving, deceit encompasses such things as lying, misleading or distorting the truth, twisting what is right and turning it into something far different. In Jeremiah 17.9, we find the verse, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Okay, this goes on to say, and I'm skipping a little bit. The old Hebrew lexicon says this word means inner man, the mind, the will, or the heart that inner part of a person or innermost being. It's the same inner being referenced in Genesis 6-6 when God was grieved in his heart for making humankind, which turned out to be so wicked, or in Genesis 17-17 when Abraham laughed in his heart that God would give him and Sarah a child in their old age. Deceitful, Jeremiah used the word echob, which means insidious, deceitful, tricked by footprints. There's an inference of sneakiness and manipulation here, underhanded aspect. Other symptoms include slippery or sly or insidious. Basically, the prophet is saying human beings are sneaky, treacherous, and crafty at our core. Not worthy of trust or righteousness, deceitful is the opposite of God, who we know is only good. Indeed, 1 John 1.5 tells us God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. There's a contrast. Within us at our core, we are sneaky and treacherous and crafty and deceitful. And yet God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. And when we accept Christ and we put our faith in him and we ask him to indwell us, to take control of us, it's taking that inner part. And then Jesus tells us, you are the light of the world. And this isn't the the warring of two beasts, you know, you feed one and you starve the other and all that stuff. 
This is a transformation that takes place, but it's a willing transformation, a transformation that we have to help facilitate. But if we're not facilitating that transformation, if we're not actively seeking, actively identifying what we believe, what do you believe? What is truth? What are you standing on? Is it a seashore? Is it the wave of emotional appeal that you get every day? Oh, it's horrible that the FBI raided Trump's estate. And yet for months and months, we heard, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. Well, which is it? Which hypocrisy is good enough? And of course, the hypocrisy is becoming so evident. We have an incredible list of people right now intimately connected with not only the government, but the establishment between the Clintons and the Bidens and various other leaders and groups, you know, that have used their position of political power to oppress those who come against them. And I would think that Trump was smart enough not to be so gullible to think that he would be able to do what they do and get away with it. But people get away with evil all the time. And frankly, most Christians, most believers, don't. There's a different standard. And part of it is, I think, not only do we get caught because our enemy loves to trap us in a snare, but our own conscience catches us. And we admit to our failure. We admit to our frailty. We admit to our poor decisions. If we do not have our beliefs sorted out, we can get really trapped in a lot of debate that we don't need to hold. We don't need to fight with. We don't need to discuss. If you think, oh, maybe I'm going to buy a new car. You know, my car is eight years old and I have had to fix a few things on it. So maybe I'll go get a new car. And then you look at your finances and you look at the new cars out there and you recognize the cost involved and the investment required and the potential for other repairs that you have on your car. And you decide, you know what, my 2008 car is just fine. I'm going to keep it for a few more years. I'm going to save a little bit more money so I can just pay cash for my car when I buy it. And the decision is done. If you go back and tease yourself with the idea of buying a new car, and trust me, something's going to come up. You're going to watch a TV show and there's going to be five car commercials for the car you were looking at. There's going to be radio commercials. People are going to talk about their new car or their need to get a new car. Or somebody's going to tell you, you need to get a new car. (sighs) There's going to be those temptations. But if you've set in your heart, you've set in your mind and you've made a decision that this is where I'm at. I am not buying a new car for three years, period, point blank. All those debates, all those appeals, all that pressure is nothing because you've made up your mind. It's not time. And that's a simple issue. What we're going to talk about is not that simple of an issue. I have been digging through a lot of data and I'm going to go, I'm going to do a special podcast just dedicated to this next topic. But right now I'm going to give you just an overview. 75% of Americans claim to be Christians. 2% claim to be Jewish and less than 1% consider themselves Muslim. Of that 75% that claim to be Christian, there's a huge, broad spread of what that means and how that impacts their lives. And there are many people who would say, eh, probably not that many. And I would have to agree, because what is a Christian? 
is a Christian somebody who went to church when they were a kid and believes in God and says, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And I know you have heard these verses, but it behooves us to just hear it here. In James 2, starting in verse 18, it says, but some may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. But you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? Was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac to the altar? You see that faith working with his works. As the result of works, faith was perfected. Now there's this works debate. You can believe in God and just say that. And it doesn't mean that maybe you have faith in Christ, that you believe in Jesus and what he did as a substitutionary offer for you. And then there's the other side that says, well, I'm a good person. I do all these good works. Of course, God's going to take care of me. You know, these are two extremes of the same vein. It's like two sides of a river. Neither one of them is in the river. The right side says, I believe in God. That's good. Yes, I believe there's a river there. It's good. The other side says, oh, I do all this good stuff and I'm using the water from the river, right? I'm using the water from the river and I'm doing all these really good things. So I'm good. But there's people in the river saying, come in, come in. It's not the works that you do on your own. It's not just belief alone. You have to be in the water. You have to be in. You have to believe. You have to get wet. I don't know that that description explains exactly what I'm trying to say, but you can believe with it being useless and you can do with it being useless. You have to believe and do. Faith with works. And it's not that your works give you faith. It's that because of your faith, you're compelled to use what you know, to use it, to do it, to work it out, to work out your faith. So we have 75% of the people in the United States who say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And we have two major political parties, one of which said, we're just going to take God out of this because, you know, it's not that important. And it was a battle. And I think it was more the Jews that came back and said, hey, we're Democrats, we're Jewish, we're not taking God out of the mix, okay? (laughs) And the Republicans on the other side are going, are these people crazy? How can they take God out? And yet there are full believers on both sides. And that kind of makes me scratch my head and, and shake it and go, what is going on? Because from my perspective, it doesn't seem to make sense. But from their perspective, it does. Now, the Democrat Party has shifted a lot in the last 10 years, 20 years in their pulling back the curtain a little bit. And I think in a lot of ways they have been, I'm not going to say infiltrated, because I think there's been a lot of communists in the Democrat Party for close to 100 years in that they have been working since the early 1900s to shift in the words of Obama, to fundamentally change the United States. Those were his words, not mine. You can look up the quote. And what Obama was unable to do in his slow and steady hand, although many people on the right looked at what he was doing as extreme, it was a continuation of this slow, steady march. And Trump came in and kind of shook all that up and set things back a little bit. So then when Biden got in, it has been full on, no holds barred, get it done while you can. 
And there are people who are fleeing the Democrat Party. There are people that are fleeing the Republican Party. Party affiliation doesn't really identify who you are as far as God's concerned, because really in God's economy, in the economy of eternity, there are two men and you're either with Adam or you're with Jesus. That's it. And and those who are not with Jesus are against God. Now, there's a special carve out for the Jews. I'm not exactly sure how that is all going to play out in the end. But I do believe there is special provisions because even in the New Testament writings, it says that they're given a time for the Gentiles. So the Gentiles is everybody that's not a Jew. (laughs) So I'm not sure how that all plays out. And I'm not going to tread where I don't understand the big picture. That's God's thing. So carving out the Jews, and I do believe that there are a lot of Jews who've accepted Jesus. There's a whole Messianic movement. There's the Messianic churches that are Jews who have accepted Christ. So there is that, but this is the time of the Gentiles. Just like there were times when Jews went to places that were not fully Jewish and still practiced their faith or still tried to, and I'm talking before Christ. Aside from that, in God's economy, there are two men, Adam, who is sin, and Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment, the payment of your sin, that substitutionary payment for your sin. And if you don't know a lot about this, or if your faith is, um, you're not sure what to believe, A, you can go back and listen to the first podcast, podcast number one, Believer. It is the foundational cornerstone of everything that you do, and it should impact, and it does impact everything you do in life. Every attitude that you have, every perspective that you have is based on what you believe to be true. And if you haven't clarified that, you are constantly at the whim of everything around you, anything and everything that comes at you. So you can go back and listen to that podcast and you can go to my website and download the ebook. Go to elainecross.com. There on the front page is what does living brightly mean? Start here and believer is right there on the front page. If you go to elainecross.com slash Jesus, you will get the link to download the ebook connecting to your true power source which outlines what this means to believe in Jesus and walks you through all that. So I suggest that you do that. Yeah, you have to put in your email and stuff because that's how you get it. But if you find that you haven't quite defined what you believe, you have not quite figured that out, which as we go on, that might become more apparent and I'll give that link again later. So you're either with Adam or you're with Jesus. And we've got 75% of the people in the country of 350 million people who say they're Christians. Of that 350 million people, there are about 250 million that are voting age. Okay, so they're old enough to register to vote and vote. 252 million people in 2020 were able to vote. Of that, 67% actually voted. That means 30% sat on their hands. And that was the highest turnout ever. It's right around 60%. Now in 2012, only 58% of the eligible voters voted. And that's a presidential year. Midterm, like this year coming up, drop that by 20 percentage points. So instead of 65%, you're looking at 45%. Less than 50% of the people will decide who goes to Congress, who goes to the Senate this year. 
Now, it has been one crazy year. <laughs> and with the FBI doing their raid on Mar-a-Lago and the Supreme Court really establishing the Constitution again for quite a long time, sending Roe back to the states where it belongs, the decision to have an abortion and those kind of things needs to be decided by the states because if it's not delineated in the Constitution, it's determined by the states. They also reaffirm the Second Amendment that it is in the Constitution that the states cannot deny people the right to own and bear arms. We've had some, which I've shared on here, three religious liberty cases. First Amendment, you do not have the right to prohibit someone from exercising their faith. But are you exercising your faith? Are you practicing your faith? Are you learning about your faith? So I took those raw data from the Census Bureau, and then I took it on over to the Pew Research Center and the Religious Research Center and a couple different places and pulled different data points together. And there are a surprising number of people who consider themselves liberal and Christian. And there are a small percentage of them that are active in their faith. They go to church every week or more than once a month. They attend a Bible study or a prayer meeting or something. They might read their Bible. But the vast majority don't go to church, don't read their Bible, don't study scripture, and use common sense as their reasoning for solving problems. There is an incredibly, incredibly small number of believers, left or right, that say the word of God is truth. That's huge. I can say anything about myself. And in today's society, that's acceptable. I can say I'm a dog. But if I don't act like a dog, if I don't eat dog food, if I don't, you know, it doesn't make me a dog. Now, granted, I can't be a dog. I'm a human. But if I say I believe, I say I'm a Christian, and I do not read my Bible, attend services, gather with other believers, do any kind of Bible study or prayer, and I rely on my own common sense to make decisions, you might not be a Christian. There was a comedian, and I don't want to get his name wrong, but his tagline was, there's your sign, there's your sign. And he would make these jokes and people would do things that are kind of ridiculous. And he would say, there's your sign. Well, there's your sign, whether you're a Christian or not. If you're not actively growing in your faith, and I don't mean just sitting in a pew, because there's thousands of people who sit in a pew who listen to a sermon every week, and it doesn't impact their life because they're not working out their faith. They're not doing anything to advance that transformation of their soul to represent Christ. They're in the, I believe, camp. Well, you're not in the water. You have to be in the water, you know, the river, the two sides of the river, <laughs> So you've got those who do all these good things and they say they're a good person because they're comparing themselves to everyone around them. And I'm a really good person. But if you're not believing in what God tells you, if you're not communicating with God and letting God communicate with you, if you're not building a relationship with Christ, you're fooling only yourself. And you need to stop fooling yourself. Now, I believe you're listening to this because you're not a fool and you do believe but if you're resting on your own actions and your own sound judgment, when you know your heart is foolish and deceitful above all things, there's your sign. Maybe you're not. Now, maybe you are, but you're just deluded and you're misdirected. You're distracted. 
by these things of the world. I'm here today to tell you, stop being distracted. It's easy because there's audio and visual and emotions and people and preset ideas within your own heart of how things should be. I was, I'm a teacher and I taught science. As I teach science, I used a method called modeling and it's not widely used, but the people who use it love it because it challenges these preconceived ideas that we end up with because we hear things and we see things and we assume them to be true. So it challenges those preconceived ideas. When you go to church, when you read your Bible, when you hear something that I say or another person of faith shares with you about Christ, about the Bible, about truth, and it just grates on you and you're like, that can't be the way it is. That's not right. That is a moment to learn. They've determined that long-term memory is very hard to change. And a lot of teachers teach science from a very, almost like a way that you might teach history or math tables, right? The multiplication tables for math. If you just memorize it, memorize it, these are the formulas, memorize the formulas, that's how it works out, it always works out. That doesn't always work out well because we bring with us experiences and things that we've been taught, things that we know that we have believed. And if you believe it to be that way, it's hard to counter that thought pattern that's in your mind. The best way to change that thought pattern is to directly challenge it with new experience. So in modeling, the students experience these challenging events to challenge well-known common stumbling points in the way people thought science worked. Case example, if I ask you what happens when something burns, most people will respond with answers like it gets consumed, energy gets transformed into heat, the mass reduces because the oxygen burns off things and it goes into the air in the form of smoke and whatever. And So you've got these basic concepts of what it means when something burns, this destruction through heat that leaves less than there was before it started. And I have them define that, define what it means so that you get your basic idea out there in the open. What do you think this means? Write it down. They discuss it. Okay, now we're going to do a test of that. And I give them, this is, it's so simple. I give them steel wool and a nine volt battery. And they take the mass of the steel wool and write it down. And then they touch the steel wool with the nine volt battery and they can see red glow and occasionally they'll get a little smoke, but they'll see this this red shoot through the different veins of the steel wool and they get all excited. Oh, this is really cool. I didn't know you could do this. And they get all excited and it's really fun. It's really cool. So they do that a little bit and they'll touch it in many different places to try and burn the steel wool. Okay, once you've burned it, put it back on the scale and get the mass. And then report your results. It's all, it's, that was it. And I kid you not, my honor students, 90% of them fudged the results and they fudged the results to meet the expectation of what they assumed was going to happen. And one year I had a transfer student into the honors class. She had transferred from another district, was in the honors class. So she wasn't in the group of people that knew everybody, right? 
which is always a great thing because they're fresh and they, they can be bold and they can be honest. And she was a little bit of a, let's just say she didn't look like what you would assume an honor student to look. She didn't look like most of the kids in the class. She was her own person. And I loved her because <laughs> she was honest whether you wanted to hear it or not, because she didn't have anything to lose. She didn't have a friend group to lose. She didn't have, she was just seeing it. She was reporting it. So of course she got a couple of the other nerdy people with her that didn't really have a a tight friend group in, in her little group of four. And as I'm walking around the room, she kind of pulls me aside from her three and she's like, you want us just to report our results, what we see? Like, yeah, just report your results. That's all I ask. She's like, yeah, but it doesn't really make sense. I'm like, that's all right. Just report it. We'll see how it plays out in everybody else's reports. Okay. And in modeling, we have board meetings. And by board meetings, we have a whiteboard, you write all your results on it. And then we sit together in a group and people talk to each other and we will have a couple groups give their presentation and then they'll discuss it. This is when the real debate and the challenge to your preset beliefs takes place. So, of course, I called on one of the other groups. I'd seen their numbers. I knew exactly what they were doing. (laughs) And they were like, oh, yes. And we saw these red lines and we saw a little smoke and we lost 0.03 of our mass. Okay. Went to the next group. Yeah, we lost 0.05 points of our mass. Oh, okay. Well, what about this other group? And I turned to her and she's like, okay, I'll just report what you saw. (laughs) And she said, well, we had similar experience. We saw the red, but we had an increase of 0.04 in our mass. What do you think happened? And they're like, well, we're not really sure. So we got out model sets of molecules and we we set up the molecule for the steel wool and we added the energy. And of course, we have to take into account what's in the air around them. And through the process, they see that oxygen actually attaches itself to the iron and the mass should go up. So these preconceived ideas that there'll be a loss, there'll be destruction, be heat and energy will be released. They never even considered the idea that through that, something could become more densely packed with molecules. And it challenged them and, and they struggled with that. And that was okay because they never, ever, ever forgot that that chemical reactions depend on where the energy goes. Is the energy stored in more bonds or is the energy actually released? Because there's energy there and you can't do everything in a vacuum. You can't do everything devoid of what's in the atmosphere around what you're doing. So today I'm going to challenge you with some things and I want you to really think with respect to what you believe. And if you hit that challenge point, don't dismiss it. Don't just blow it off and say it's not really that important. Take it to God and say, what the heck is going on? Why is this this way? I'm just going to hit a few highlights of a few little things because there's a lot to this. Therefore, where does the environment fall in your hierarchy of belief? Is the environment an idol? What I see with a lot of Christians is they use their passion for the environment to overshadow their role to push back against the chaos. 
Now, I'm happy that we have improved our environment in such a way that our rivers don't burn and our water's not polluted and our air is clean. We hosted an exchange student from China and almost every day for a year, she would make some comment about the atmosphere. The air is so clear. The clouds are so white. I've never seen white clouds before because in China, they're putting on a coal power plant every 30 minutes. Well, they have millions of people who didn't have electricity. And in the United States, when we first became industrialized and were putting electricity in everybody's homes and was expanding and growing in that way, our environment got very dirty. Then in time, as we all got to a level of life where we had a lot of food security and we had heat security, we knew we had shelter, we had the basic needs of a human being taken care of, we started looking and going, we really should clean up this environment. So we cleaned up the environment and we have done a lot with it. Now, in some respects, it has gone overboard and it has become a religion in and of itself. So are you a Christian in name only where your God is the environment? And we do have a duty. We have a responsibility to be good stewards of this earth. We are called to push back against the chaos and make it a place that is good for the animals to survive as well as the humans. We can't discount the fact that God said, be fruitful and multiply. God didn't create a world that didn't need humans to push back against the chaos. God created this earth with the idea that humans would tend the garden. So are you tending the garden or is the garden your God? I know that ruffles some feathers, but I want you to really think about it people have been on this earth, let's just go with the Jewish calendar for almost 6,000 years. That's long enough for us to make this analogy. People have been on this earth for 6,000 years. Electricity has been available all this time. It has really only been in the last 100 years that we have used electricity to the level that we do. And the idea of electricity has not been around much more than 100 years a very, very small amount of time compared to 6,000 years. In 1980s, they said we were going to freeze to death. There was not enough food for everybody. Everybody was going to be starving and the world was going to end with just chaos everywhere because we could not possibly produce enough food for all the people. There were not quite or maybe right at the 6 billion mark of people in the world. Here we are in 2020, 40 years later, and there are almost 8 billion people in the world. And the amount of people who are starving is way, way, way less than it was in the 1980s. Fewer people have food insecurity, I think is the term they like to use now, than there were then. And yet there is a huge group of people that was active in the 80s and they've ramped things up now that are just screaming, we have too many people in the world. So which is true? Are we to be fruitful and multiply, resting in the truth that God has provided everything that we need for people to survive, meaning they they can eat, right? God doesn't want you to produce people that can't eat, which is true. Or is there too many people in the world? Will everyone starve? Well, in the process of those last 40 years, farming has changed incredibly in their ability to produce food based on acreage and therefore feed more people. But these people who the earth is their God, 
the earth has become their supreme being that they hail to. And, and I understand the confusion there because everything that we have comes from the earth. But the earth is just created for us, for us to take advantage of what it offers to push back against the impeding chaos. If you go on a trip somewhere and you visit ruins, especially someplace like Brazil or an area where there were people living, I'm not talking about Greece where there's still thousands of people living in the city and there's some ruins of an old building and people come to look and take pictures. I'm talking about a place where it has been totally abandoned by humans because they have moved other places and they have these old ruins and it doesn't take long before chaos the chaos of the garden takes over and destroys it. We were on a hike just yesterday with the granddaughters and we found what used to be the foundation of a home. We could tell it was a home based on the way things were laid out, but there's trees growing and there's moss and there's plants and there's no home there. There's no, there's very little vestiges of a home except the rocks that they used to create the foundation. So that was enough of a footprint for us to say, okay, we can see there was a house here. And that house was probably there 100 years ago. It wasn't that old. What is our role within the world? And this globalist push to reduce the population hasn't gone away since the 80s. It's it's ramping up. And right now you'll hear reports of fertilizer and farmers and reducing the amount of footprint for farming. And in particular, it's not even so much that they want to get rid of the wheat farmers, but they do. They want to get rid of the wheat farmers. But more important, they want to get rid of the animal farmers. And they want to get rid of the animal farmers because, oh, they they fart too much or they take up too much space or whatever it is. What, What are they going to do? Slaughter all the cows? Well, I'm sure they're not going to slaughter all the cows. They're going to have them for their the top 1%. It's still going to be able to get a steak, but it's going to be $500 a steak and only so many people can afford that. The rest of us are going to eat bugs and grain and some slop they put together because we're animals, because that's their view. So do you believe that humans are just animals and therefore the worst animal on the planet that needs to be depleted from 8 billion to 1 billion, because that's the number that the planet can successfully sustain on its own? which would leave no one to push back against the chaos. It would be completely back to subsisting. And their push is to utterly destroy life as we know it, to go back to 1 billion people on the earth. Of course, the powers that be think they're going to be the ones that stay. And through that, they have this trifecta, famine, pandemic, and war. And right now that trifecta is in full swing. Famine, which they're causing. They're literally causing the famine. They are stealing the land from the farmers in the Netherlands, in Sri Lanka, and here in the United States. You don't hear it much, but there are people that, Bill Gates is one of them, has bought up millions of acres of land that has been farming because he just wants to stop farmers. He wants to put them out of business and we'll eat bugs, we'll eat crickets. And the, the social conditioning is already out there on PBS and some TV shows for kids about the benefits of eating bugs. Bugs have their own issues. Bugs fart too. <laughs> and it, with the farmers, they're saying, oh, nitrogen is bad. Well, newsflash, 78% of the air you breathe is nitrogen. There's no way they're going to take nitrogen out of the universe. There would be no breathable air. We don't breathe oxygen. We breathe nitrogen with a little bit of oxygen in it. 
some of these are challenging. And some of these are things I want you to be challenged by because I want you to dig into what do you believe? Do you believe in the creator of the universe? Do you believe he commanded us to be fruitful and multiply? Not for 100 years, not for 500 years, forever. Be fruitful and multiply. It's in his plan. He planned it that way. And as population increases, in particular, as we get to the point where we can feed ourselves and we can house ourselves so we have safety, security, and food, then we can use the other gifts and talents that God has given us to investigate and develop new technologies so we can do those things better. You know, we're not milking by hand anymore. Virtually nobody's milking by hand unless you have a very small farm and you're one person or you're Amish. You're not listening to this podcast. Everybody is using machinery. Machinery runs on electricity and electricity is the key. Can you live without electricity? Did man create electricity or did God create electricity? What do you believe? It is so important and it is so core to how you perceive the world and how you perceive these appeals, these emotional appeals to change the way you think and feel. I believe God created the universe, put us people here to tend the garden and use all the resources that he put in this world, which includes oil and gas and renewables. It also includes the different types of fruits, vegetables and plants, farm animals, domesticated animals, all of it. From having your house cat to a nice juicy steak, God provided it all. What do you believe? What do you think you believe? And what is in conflict with your beliefs? What beliefs conflict with each other? Process that. Think that. It's a challenge. But if you say you're a Christian, are you on the banks of the river or are you in the water? Do you believe that the river is there? And yeah, it's, it's there. And you're just standing on the sideline. You're an observer, not a believer. Or you believe it's there. You're just not in the water. You're on the sidelines. I know I've spent a lot of time talking to those of you who have made the environment an idol, that have so obsessed over how we treat the environment that you've lost a view of the big picture. You're on that side of the river that I mentioned that is the works without faith, works without belief. But I don't want to eliminate the people that are just watching from the other side. If you're not doing anything to push back against the chaos, to tend the garden, to take care of this environment that God has given us, you're not involved and you're not off the hook. I'm not saying that there's a million things you need to do and that you need to jump in and get to the other side and get into full on worship of the earth. We need to be good stewards. That means we need to take care of what God has given us. Part of that includes things like hunting and thinning herds. We have urban deer populations that get out of control and then they end up dying and, and full of disease. We have a great park system that needs your support financially or just being out in it and using the park system. There are lots of things you can do as a believer that gets you into the water that you're not just on either side. You have to be active. You have to be in the middle. Faith without works is dead and works without faith is dead. We need to be in balance with how we view the environment and how we view all the beauty 
and wonder and provision that God has provided through the earth from drilling and tapping oil and coal supplies in a respectful manner. Strip mining was a bad plan. (sighs) We figured that out. We don't do strip mining like we used to. Even if they strip mine, they replant, they kind of reset the environment so that it can again thrive. So there's ways to use what God has given us in a responsible manner. And we need to be in that balance. God does not want us to go back to subsisting without electricity. The life as we know it, the things that we have been able to accomplish and have, the reason we can feed the world more than we could even in the 80s, and certainly a million times better than we could in the 1900s, 1910, is because of the Industrial Revolution, is because of the ability of men to create and use what God has given us in this earth to meet the needs of the people as well as the planet, using the resources that God has given us wisely, learning from our mistakes and doing better. Do you do good things in your comparing yourself to other people? Or do you rely on what he has done for you? If you are in the river, not only do you believe that God created the universe and put you here for a very distinct purpose, you are uniquely created by God. You also believe and act on that because of what Jesus Christ did for you. You are using your gifts and talents and skills to push back against the chaos, not because you're comparing yourself to your neighbor or to those around you, but because you're comparing yourself to Jesus Christ. And you're allowing and working with him to transform you in your thinking, in your evaluating, in your understanding of how the world works, and your place in the world, and what you're to do in the world, and how you're to respond to everything around you. Politics, the world, the environment, your work, how you work, what you work, all of it. Again, if you don't know what it means to really connect to your true power source, what it means to truly believe in God, you know, you, you believe in God and you consider yourself a Christian, but you've decided maybe I'm, maybe I need to know a little bit more. Go to elainecross.com slash Jesus and it will take you right to a, a page, put in your email address and you will be able to download connecting to your true power source. It's a guide to kind of walk you through that to get you a good base in where to start. I hope you have found value in this podcast I put together to inform you and to help you trim your wick and fill your lamp so that you can live brightly. You can be a bright lamp and together we can be a city on a hill but I can't do this alone. And if you want to help produce this show, you want to help keep it going. The first thing I want you to do is share it with other people. The other thing I want you to do is put a value on that value that you've gotten. Come up with a number, look at your budget, only you can decide what that number is. Turn it into a number and make a donation. Go to elainecross.com and make a donation right there. There's several options. If there's an option that you want to use that you don't see, or you have a question send me a note at donate at elainecross.com. And in the subject line, donate question. And I will take a look at that and get back to you or bring it up here on the podcast. Maybe I will create a new method for you to make a donation to the podcast if that's what you need. And together, we can transform this world 
by being a bright light in the darkness that is ever encroaching from all directions. It's not a time to be anxious. It's not a time to be afraid. It's a time to really clarify what you believe and stand firm on it, resting in what Christ has done, knowing your identity comes from Christ, that he has created you uniquely and purposefully for right here, right now, with specific gifts and talents that are first for you and then for the world. And then you can radiate your light outward by honoring the touch of God in everyone, standing firm in your tribe, gathering together with a group of people who believe like you, who can help you grow in your faith and grow in knowledge and truth, where you can live with liberty because God's plan is liberty. And liberty is messy. Liberty is very messy, but I would rather have liberty than tyranny. And in the process, we yield to the Holy Spirit and his move and his call on our life together, living brightly, a bright city on a hill. Thanks for joining me. Till next time.